This is The Guardian. Hello, Jonathan Friedland here. We're going to run this week's episode of Politics Weekly America here for you. But please, if you enjoy the show, make sure to search for Politics Weekly America on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and then hit that subscribe button. And you need to do that even if you already subscribe to Politics Weekly UK. I'll be there with all the news from Washington every Friday. Thanks so much. We've spent the last couple of weeks talking about the impact Joe Biden, the US and US politics is having on the war in Ukraine. We saw that impact again just this week when the Pentagon, America's Defense Department, blocked a transfer of fighter planes from Poland to Ukraine, a move that the Ukrainians had been asking for, but many others feared would see an escalation of the war. Some say the reason this war is still going on at all is that even though the US has the largest military ever in history, it's just too scared to use it. It won't dare do anything that might risk a nuclear confrontation with Vladimir Putin. The Russian leader himself says it's America and its NATO allies that provoked this war by expanding NATO too close to Russia's borders. So what exactly is the role of American power in this conflict and in today's world? Does America do too much or not enough? I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist for The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. My guest for this week has thought about the question of American power long and hard and argues that, if anything, Vladimir Putin has given us a glimpse of what the world might be like without America playing that leading role. Dr. Shadi Hamid is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, co-host of the podcast Wisdom of Crowds, and a contributing writer at The Atlantic, where he's written a provocative new essay on this whole issue. I started off by asking Shadi Hamid his thoughts on why Joe Biden isn't doing what the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is asking him to do. Shadi Hamid, it's very good to have you on the podcast. We're talking about American power. I think no one disputes that the United States has amassed the mightiest arsenal in the world and indeed in history. No one has ever seen a bigger arsenal. Volodymyr Zelensky is in effect asking the Americans in the West to use it, saying, why don't you use it? You have to stop this man who is bombing his country. Today, the alliance's leadership gave the green light for further bombing of Ukrainian towns and villages, refusing to make a no-fly zone. When he says, why don't you use the power you have, what is the answer to that question, would you say? Well, we are using quite a bit of the power that we have. I mean, what we're seeing certainly in terms of what might be called economic warfare, you know, which I support fully in this particular instance, that is unprecedented, just the, the sheer level of unity that we see among Western nations and how much the sanctions are biting and how extensive they are. Now, Zelensky is clearly calling for more than that, specifically a no-fly zone. I think it's understandable from an American and European perspective to be not too enthusiastic about that. That's obviously a very, um, a very significant escalation that risks 
an escalatory spiral and God forbid, even a kind of nuclear confrontation, either with tactical nukes or worse. So I think it's reasonable to say that there are limits to what the US will do. You mentioned the no-fly zone. In that context, this week, there was a move, a proposal anyway, that Poland would transfer to Ukraine Soviet-era fighter planes that it had and that the Ukrainian Air Force is capable of flying. And then the word came late in the evening from the Pentagon saying, in effect, no, that the the Americans were not going to bless that plan. Now, we get what you said just a moment ago about how America doesn't want to get tangled in a direct confrontation with a nuclear-armed Russia. But why would Washington put the block on that plan that would see Polish aircraft go to Ukraine and Ukraine then fly them and fight the Russians with them? Not being a military expert, I can't say exactly how they came to that um, to that recommendation or that decision. My basic view on all of this is that we should do as much as possible short of an outright shooting war with Russia. So whatever various policymakers and analysts have in mind, and there are a variety of creative ideas out there about how we can do more in terms of providing jets that Ukrainians are capable of flying and anti-tank weaponry, and the list goes on, we should do that to the fullest extent possible because um, ultimately Western power here is good. And I think we should be comfortable saying that Western power is good. And obviously in recent years and decades, there's been a lot of consternation about the very idea of American power. And I think that's shifting. Just before we leave the immediate situation, I, I, just going, I, and I understand the point about military hardware and neither you nor I are military experts, but just on the principle of this, the former chess grandmaster, now human rights activist and focus for a lot of dissent in Russia, Garry Kasparov, he's been really trenchant trying to sort of shake the, the West by the lapels and say, look, you've got to understand, Putin will not stop until he is stopped. And you've had several opportunities to, to, to stop him. And he refers to Georgia in 2008, the Russian seizure of Crimea in 2014 and Russian involvement in the murderous war in Syria. And each time he says, you haven't done it, this man, Putin, will keep doing this until you, the West, use your Western power and stop him. And that means NATO, which in effect, of course, means the dominant power in NATO, the United States. So just on the principle of the argument, is Kasparov wrong about any of that? He's certainly right on the history that over the past 15 years or so, the U.S. has been somewhat deferential to Russian ambitions. So Putin has learned from all that. He has watched our own self-doubt. He has watched how the West has been feckless in a number of these instances. And I think that that's why he's not crazy. He saw Western weakness for 15 years or longer. And he took that to heart. And he thought that he could get get away with this. And he may get away with this. It's still the most likely scenario in the end is that um, Russia will win. Now, it might be at a tremendous cost. And the Russians will probably suffer significant losses as they already have. But that is still the scenario that we're looking at that Putin might keep on going until the very end. So in that sense, Kasparov is right. Now, when he extends the argument to say, well, we should impose a no-fly zone, I mean, I'm not, I think there 
there could be instances in the future where we have to consider that more seriously. And we all have to ask ourselves, are we going to be comfortable just continuing sending arms and weaponry and, and not consider doing more to stop mass killing on, on a, on a vast scale? Yeah. And the president of Ukraine on Wednesday certainly argued that that red line had been crossed. And he tweeted straight after the attack on Mariupol saying direct strike of Russian troops at the maternity hospital, people, children under the wreckage, atrocity. How much longer will the world be an accomplice ignoring terror? Close the sky right now. You have power, but you seem to be losing humanity. And he's addressing obviously the West, uh, but America would be central in that. I want to pick up your point a bit about the response that Putin's own calculation may have been that he saw the West uh, in some ways its timidity and therefore he was reacting in in making his uh, play for to grab Ukraine. In some ways what prompted him was not Western aggression, the expansion to of NATO's borders, which is what Putin himself argues, and some in the West actually echo that argument and say it was NATO expansionism that did it. On the contrary, you're arguing that it was perhaps Western timidity that prompted Putin to make his move. Yeah, I mean, just to speak frankly, I mean, I think the argument that the US and Europe are the ones that provoked Putin into this is just utterly absurd. It also, I think assumes good intentions on the part of Putin, that Putin is someone who is just doing what any normal person would do. And it's a way to basically rationalize and justify Putin's invasion of a sovereign country. I think that's part of a tendency to blame America first, because we're so used to America doing um, bad, if not terrible things. And, you know, as someone who came of age during the Iraq war. And for a lot of us in our generation, that was our formative moment where we saw the dangers of American excess. And I think a lot of people understandably took that to heart. And that's the way they came to see America's role in the world. But we have to be careful not to extend those lessons and apply them to very different cases that have nothing to do with Iraq and nothing to do with our excesses and misadventures 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah, so you've brought us to this essay of yours that's made a few waves in the Atlantic. Headline, there are many things worse than American power. Um, it's As I said, it's got a, lo a lot of attention. In a way, the people you're addressing in that uh, argument are the kind of people I was sort of referring to before, who do believe that, uh, you know, the, it, the problem in the world has not been a lack of American action, but rather America doing too much and doing it wrong. And, you know, I think you, you sort of acknowledge that in the piece and you say, look, America's conduct can be your words, lousy, disappointing and maddeningly hypocritical in its conduct abroad. Just drill down into what are the lousy, maddening disappointments and hypocrisies that that animates the people in a way you're addressing in this essay. You know, the Middle East is one place where American power has been used for bad. Um, I think we've been uniquely um, disappointing. Um, in other regions of the world, um, towards the end of the Cold War and then after, we started to actually support democratic transitions in Latin America and parts of Africa, in Asia. 
The one exception to the rule was the Middle East, where we continue to support some of the most repressive regimes in the world. And that's part of America's tragic legacy in a very important region and a region that I care about. And, you know, I suppose many Americans at least think is important. So there's that. And of course, if we go deep into the Cold War, the various coups that the U.S. supported against socialist leaders who were democratically elected, those examples are th- are there and we have to acknowledge them. So that's that's sort of where I'm coming from. And, you know, in the piece, I mentioned that like a lot of people when I was in college in the early 2000s, you know, I started to read Noam Chomsky then and other leftist critics of U.S. foreign policy, and they had a point on a number of these issues. And look, some of those critics have been active again now and vocal again now. And one of the points they make is the argument that NATO poses no threat to Russia because it's a purely defensive alliance. Well, they say, that argument is undermined by the fact that NATO did fight wars outside its own area in the sense of bombing Belgrade during the Balkan Wars or the intervention in Libya. uh, And therefore, you know, it's a bit rich, runs this argument, for America to be, to and and NATO members generally, to be saying, well, what possible threat could it represent if, uh, you know, the likes of Poland and the Baltic nations have joined NATO? We've talked about how, you know, Putin may be just using as as an excuse, but this idea that NATO's record is not blameless. Well, no, no one's 100% blameless. I mean, we did not extend NATO membership to Ukraine, uh, to, to many Ukrainians dismay. So on, on the key case here, the US and Europe were very careful not to proceed with that. As for the other NATO interventions that you mentioned, I mean, I have trouble understanding those people who think we shouldn't have intervened against genocide in Bosnia and Kosovo in the 1990s. That obviously put some of these some of these people in the uncomfortable position of basically saying that we should have done nothing and and perhaps allowed tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands to perish. Similarly in Libya, not to go into the details of that too much, but that was primarily in response to mass killings that were ongoing and the fear of more significant massacres um, if Gaddafi's forces had actually March towards Benghazi in 2011. So I think it's hard to draw a moral equivalency between those kinds of interventions and what Russia is doing, which is very clearly an invasion of a sovereign country. It's not as if the Ukrainians were attacking Russia or killing Russians on Russian soil and then, oh, the Russians decide they have to respond. I don't think anyone's really making that argument. So I think that's where we have to be very clear about who's invading who and who's responding to what. And in terms of invading a sovereign country, despite the lack of a direct provocation, you know what's coming next. The critics of America, again, the people I think you're addressing in your essay, will say, well, the last really big example of that was the US-led invasion of Iraq. Sovereign country, no direct provocation. Tanks rolled in and invaded it. Yeah, and that's one of that's one of the tragic cases that I mentioned where it's, you know, one of the great blunders of US foreign policy and as someone who was involved in the anti-war movement at that time when I was in college, I think a lot of us saw that as being I mean that shaped us for precisely that reason that we couldn't understand how this war was being justified and why it was being justified. 
So yes, the US has done bad things, but it's unclear to me how one then makes the logical leap and then says, well, because the US did something terrible in 2003, that somehow gives Russia a pass in 2022. And also, I think it's worth noting that Saddam was a brutal dictator who killed tens of thousands of his own people, where Ukraine is a sovereign nation that has a democratically elected government and has no record of killing its own people. Again, this is not to say that what the US did was good, but just to say that to make a direct moral equivalency and say US 2003 is equal to Russia 2022, I just don't think that argument holds if we look at the specifics of each case. Yeah. And we've been talking about the, the, this group who whose first impulse as you put it, is blaming America first. Uh, we've mentioned Noam Chomsky and your reading as a student. Some listeners will assume that you're talking about the left, and there definitely are people on the left who, in America who are wary of American power and want to think uh, there should be less of it. America should you know, throw its weight around less. But it's not only on the left, is it? No, and it's gone well beyond that. So one example that might seem counterintuitive to to listeners that I bring up is um, Barack Obama himself, who's not a member of the far left, but that he was affected by this broader crisis of confidence that many of us Americans were feeling over the last two decades. So even though we weren't saying that, oh, you know, Putin is good, or let's try to understand Russia, I think there was a doubt in our own capacity to do good abroad, that because we had seen post 9-11, because we had seen the Iraq war, we started to think, well, maybe US power, you know, isn't something that is going to make the world better. And it's better for us as Americans to take a step back and disengage and maybe not be as involved in the world. So I think that that was captured in Obama's famous foreign policy slogan, which I still have trouble believing was actually a slogan, but it was. Um, don't uh, I don't know if I can say it on on air. You can say it. You oh, can okay. say it. Uh, yeah, don't do stupid shit. That's a direct quote <laughs> that Obama was known to repeat, um, and he liked that. So, so think about like even the framing of that slogan. You would only say don't do stupid shit if you had been doing it for a long time and you saw America as just going around and doing destructive things. So so Obama's impulse was a self-limiting one. He wanted to say, well, let's not think about what we can do more or how to be better involved in some of these conflicts abroad. Let's just do no harm and step back. But of course, the problem is do no harm sounds good, but when you do no harm and you take a step back, others fill the vacuum. And we saw that, I think, most destructively in Syria, where the U.S. decided not to not to target the Assad regime. And then what happened? Russia stepped into the vacuum. Iran stepped into the vacuum. So there, the, the, in some ways, the uber-centrist, uh, Barack Obama, there's the left and, we, you know, Noam Chomsky as the poster boy for them. I, I, what I actually was also thinking of was that there are voices on the right who are wary of um, the um, use of American power. And I was thinking, you know, the ultimate example, surely, is Donald Trump, who, in your words, would, would have a low opinion of America's capacity to do good in the world. You see it voiced 
now in you know on Fox News with Tucker Carlson. It has roots in the Republican Party with Rand Paul before him, Ron Paul. This is not just a left thing or even an Obamaist centrist thing, is it? Yeah, in some ways, it's it's a universal issue that that we're contending with. Um, certainly, I mean, Trump is a little bit hard to understand. But certainly Trump is not someone who believes in the American project or the American idea abroad. He was someone who was very vocal in his 2016 campaign from the very beginning in saying that basically America is a normal country. And he took issue with even the idea of American exceptionalism. He had this famous quote where he said something along, along the lines of, well, we've done evil things too, you know, that sort of thing. You know, which may be true, but it was unusual for an American president to kind of express those doubts. What's interesting, I think though, it was in the yep. context, actually, of talking about Vladimir Putin and yep. about Vladimir Putin being a killer. And then he said, I think, as you've said, he said something like, we're not so great ourselves. You exactly. Know? And it was exactly <laughs> almost giving a moral equivalence between America and Putin's Russia. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it has been heartening to see that most in the Republican Party, at least prominent officials have tried to pivot away from being too sympathetic to Putin. So I think we're seeing more unity in the US to say we should support the Ukrainians. Um, the other thing on the question of American power is the kind of alternatives that we're looking at, because ultimately we can't hope for an ideal America that behaves like a human rights organization and does all the right things. What we're basically talking about here is a choice between American hegemony and Russian and Chinese hegemony. At the same time, I don't, I wouldn't want to give people the impression that I'm saying, well, oh, you know, now we should stop criticizing American power, or now we should just say everything America is doing and will do will probably be good on balance. No, there's a nuanced way of looking at American power that embraces it as something that can be good. But at the same time, um, realizing that that's, that's a work in progress, and it means that all of us as Americans have to keep our officials, we, we have to encourage them to actually live up to those ideals. I mean, your argument is, in a way, that we are getting a glimpse now in Putin's action, in his belief that he had, in some ways, a free hand. We are getting a glimpse of what the world looks like without American power. Sketch out for us what you see when you get that glimpse. What what would a world without American power be like? So what's remarkable about this moment is that it marks a decisive shift. For the first time, Americans under the age of 40 are actually confronted with what this might look like when there are a multipolar world where it's US and Europe and other democratic allies on one side, and then Russia, China, and other authoritarian regimes on the opposite side. And I think we're starting to see how frightening that is. It means that everything that we, or much of what we took for granted can no longer be taken for granted. I mean, even the intertwining of economic markets, this idea that free markets would rule the day, with economic sanctions being, um, you know, a first resort before military force, that calls into question the whole globalized order, the, the way the economy works at such a fundamental level. We have to put ourselves in the position 
of trying to think through what those scenarios might look like 10, 15, 20 years down the road. If God forbid China tries to make a move on Taiwan, that's the kind of world that we're looking at if regimes like Russia and China feel that they have the latitude to make these very ambitious and destructive moves. I get the sense you're saying something generational here. That in a way, you're speaking about your own generation that maybe had some pretty lukewarm or, or suspicious attitudes to American power and that took the broad stability of the global economy for granted. And that in some ways, your generation now, the, as you said, the generation that came of age in the period of the war on terror post 9-11 is having something of a of a wake up to uh, that's going on right now. Am I, am I imagining things or is that what you're telling us? That's exactly what I'm telling you. Yeah, and, I, and I'm feeling it. I, I feel a sense of foreboding. I'm genuinely frightened about what's to come because this is not something that I expected. This is not something I had thought a lot about, a Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I think most analysts were in the same boat there. And perhaps, you know, we should have taken Putin's recklessness more seriously in this regard. But I'm also thinking, too, about a younger generation that didn't even have much of a memory of 9-11, that they may be in college now, and they're trying to make sense of the world and what their own positions on US foreign policy will be. And this might be their formative moment. And that could have an effect on, say, the left more broadly, certainly the Democratic Party, which has always, at least in my memory, had a kind of ambivalence about how much to rely on hard power. And there was a whole time when we would talk about you know, nice fluffy things like soft power. And now it seems almost silly that we believed in a world where soft power could be the primary currency where we wouldn't have to any longer think about military force or even nuclear weapons or tactical nukes specifically, um, which the US has a very small supply of now precisely because we believed in this illusion of progress. Before this, uh, you know, I was, you know, I was lukewarm, ambivalent. Now I support increase, significantly increased defense spending in the US budget. Even though already the American budget is so generous to defense spending, spending more, I think, than the next 10, maybe even 20 countries combined spend on defense. So that is telling that you yourself have shifted. On this podcast, we always ask our guests a what else question. Our, our what else question is very much related, but it's sort of inward looking. And that is the politics of this. I noticed that in at least one opinion poll, uh, Joe Biden had a big spike this week up, I think, eight points in his approval rating. I know that you've noted that he early on in his presidency, I think he was just a couple of months in, declared that the battle between democracies and autocracies would be the defining struggle of our time. And I think at the at the time when he said that, people thought that was a bit overheated by Joe Biden. Now that that is looking in a way quite sort of prescient, do you think that people will rally to that almost Cold War style invocation of a battle between democracy and authoritarianism? And do you think it will actually help him and boost his standing as we go into what, after all, is a midterm election year. If, if we compare Biden's response to Ukraine to, say, his response to Afghanistan, we see we see quite the contrast. I mean, there had been this perception of American weakness and fecklessness. I think most observers would say that Biden has done a pretty good job, not perfect, 
but um, it has been an impressive coordination of allies and we see unity among Western democracies. And obviously that gives people more confidence in the Biden administration and how they can handle this crisis going forward. Um, the, in, the other interesting thing, though, is this divide between autocracies and democracies seems a lot more real. It had been a rhetorical gambit. So all this just makes it a little bit more resonant that people can actually see what Biden is talking about. And it also, I think, makes certain domestic debates in the U.S. that we had been consumed by the whole debate around wokeness and culture war and things that seem rather small now in retrospect. Everyone needs something to oppose. And now I think we're realizing that Russia is a bigger opponent than maybe our fellow Americans. So instead of being very angry at them and seeing them as existential threats to our own country, we can now look abroad. Obviously, there's dangers in that too. But it does mean that there may be at least a little bit more common ground when it comes to these broader geopolitical challenges. And we're already seeing it in how Republicans and Democrats have been, for the most part, um, supportive of Ukraine thus far. I spoke to a US academic who the other day who said, in effect, you know, your English professor misspeaking suddenly doesn't sound quite so bad when there's a nuclear armed superpower bearing down on you. Um, and so exactly. that, change, yeah, that change in perspective. Dr. Shadi Hamid, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. And that is all from me for this week. I want to hear from you. So thoughts on the podcast, questions for me to answer or address in the next few weeks, please send it all in. You can contact me on Twitter. My handle there is at Friedland. Or you can send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com. Podcasts at theguardian.com. And I'd really appreciate it if you could like and rate Politics Weekly America, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, as we always say, if you haven't yet hit subscribe, do that right away, specifically for Politics Weekly America, even if you subscribe to the regular Politics Weekly UK. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Danielle Stevens. The executive producer is Maz Ebtahaj. I'm Jonathan Friedland, and thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Hallo, hier sind Lena, Schuko, Laura, Susanne und Katrin vom Lila Podcast. Wir machen Feminismus für alle. Und das nicht nur am 8. März, sondern das ganze Jahr über. Alle zwei Wochen betrachten wir aktuelle politische und gesellschaftliche Themen mit einer feministischen Brille. Unsere neue Folge am 10. März diskutiert mit Christina Lunz über feministische Außenpolitik. Den Lila-Podcast gibt's donnerstags, alle 14 Tage.